difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. And Scott Tobias. Once again, our regular co-host Genevieve Koski is out, looking for employment in the remotest segments of the hospitality industry, but we'll muddle through without her. Last episode, we talked about Wake and Fright, an Australian cult classic that explores the decadence and delights of a small town in the outback. In this episode, we'll be discussing another film set in a similar locale, Kitty Green's Wake and Fright, starring Julia Garner, Jessica Henwick, and Hugo Weaving. Garner and Henwick play, respectively, Hannah and Liv, American tourists, so they pose as Canadians because, quote, everybody loves Canadians, unquote, who exhaust their funds in Sydney and take a job working at a remote outback pub to make some cash, an institution that served as a social hub for multiple generations of residents, most employed by a nearby mine, the Royal Hotel offers nothing in the way of luxury, but much in the way of on-the-job experience. Presided over by the hard-drinking Billy, played by an almost unrecognizable Hugo Weaving, it's a high-spirited place that crackles with macho energy. Hannah and Liv begin their ascent at the Royal Hotel, sometimes unable to discern which interactions are good-natured ribbing, which are genuine harassment, and which pose a threat to their well-being. By the end of the film, those distinctions are still often unclear, but the situations that create them have grown more tense and the stakes higher. We'll talk it over after the break. We're on vacation. We should be on a beach somewhere. We have sunshine and booze in a box. Let's put up with it for a few weeks, make some cash. It'll toughen us up. Gold is for Carl Gold. Red is Redland. Honey's in his hand. You get him a beer. Why do you want to come all the way out here? It was the furthest away. Lean in a little when you serve him down, eh? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be us in a few weeks. Cider? Yeah. Uh, Dickens? Dickens Cider? <laughs> They're disgusting. It's a tip. That's enough. Come in, go. Hi. All right, everyone. What did you think of the Royal Hotel? I had I had the good fortune to catch it in the theater. I was playing at, a, yeah. at an AMC movie. Uh, yeah, it played very well there. I like this movie. What, what about everybody else? Well, I reviewed it for us at the reveal, so uh, yeah, I liked it quite, quite a bit. And what amazed me about it was how well it works as a companion to Kitty Green's previous film, The Assistant, which uh, which I absolutely loved, of course, in that it surprised me by all the things you think it's going to do, but it does not. It really is still about environment and atmosphere and a, a certain uh, amount of workplace hostility about all those things rather than about actions that you necessarily anticipate, that you anticipate are going to happen. So I appreciate kind of the, like the discipline of the film, uh, the sustained tension of the film. 
you know, of course, the performances, the you know, the look of it. I just, I, I you know, I have some issues with the end of it, but I, I do think it's a overall quite a good movie. Very curious what Tasha thinks, however. I mean, I connected to this movie better than I connected with The Assistant, which, you know, we had a, a big fraught discussion about because I, I just had a lot of difficulties with that movie. Here, I think my ultimate difficulty just comes down to there's so much about this film. There's so many unanswered questions. There's so many unfilled in blanks that the whole movie ended up feeling a little blank for me. There are a lot of sequences, individual standalone sequences that I found very tense, very compelling, very, very winning, very interesting, but they didn't always connect for me. I, I sometimes felt like these characters were different people from scene to scene to scene. And part of that is just, you know, alcohol. There's there's a very distinct alcohol changes people vibe throughout this entire movie that I, I think is really significant, particularly given the note that somebody makes about how uh, she doesn't want to drink because her mother drinks too much. But I ended up feeling like the two central women and a lot of the men around them felt more like metaphors than like people more like symbols for specific ideas and interactions than characters are necessarily believed in. And that it certainly isn't the fault of the acting at all. I think there's some really terrific performances here. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff being negotiated. But I didn't find it, I guess what it came, came down to is I respect the artistry of a lot of it, but I just didn't find it to be a very satisfying experience in terms of the narrative in terms of, I guess, just telling me anything. Well, I think in, in a one way, it's like we can frighten not to get ahead of ourselves, but it, but it is there is not a really narrative that, uh, that pushes it forward. It, it is uh, a film of incidents, but it is, there is a progression to these women's ex- experience. There, they they leave it as different people than they began began it, though they don't go negative. I, it feels like you get the sense that the two. English pub workers that were there before them have gone fully naked by the yes. end of their experience there. And that's sort of the, the, you know, I think one Liv or Hannah says to the other, I forget which one, that that'll be us in a few weeks. And, and that is a very real possibility that, that, that to, to fully conform to this environment, that that's what it requires of them to become kind of party girls. And neither of these characters want to be that, but they keep getting pulled in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I think Liv kind of gets there in a way. She's, I think, she's halfway there before before she arrives too. Right. Yeah. So, so I like, and I do like that the distinction between the two. But, but I, what I like about it, it what what gives it that that really great sustained tension is all of these individuals that they have to kind of figure out, right? Because it's like, which of these dudes is just having a good time and kind of pulling my chain and saying some saying some kind of like edgy jokes but is generally okay you know and which of these which of these guys seem is maybe seeming like you know a person i could hang out with but is in fact predatory and dangerous and and uh you know and it's just like this constant tension of just having to figure out who these guys are and what their intentions are and being in a position of, of, you know, not having a whole lot of power over, you know, of feeling, you know, intimidated and frightened and imposed upon at all times. You know, of course they have, they do separate in terms of their reaction to things in Hannah for Hannah becomes a harder road in a way because she doesn't, 
that she doesn't smile like like she's supposed to. She's supposed to smile, and she doesn't doesn't do that. She's just kind of like gritting her way through it, and and uh, Liv finds ends up finding her own path. But at the same time, they are two young people who are trying to uh, have a. They're on vacation. You know, this is just supposed to be a break. I mean, they they want to go swimming. There's no pool, <laughs> but, but they kind of set up shop at the bottom of where there would be a pool, and they want to go out and have a good time. But the guy that they kind of go, that, that seems okay who takes them out to have a good time. Uh, who can can he really be trusted? I, I you know I mean it's just it's full of those interactions, and I think that you expect a point at which and I, and I, I mean things do get a little do get rough for sure, but but I think you 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 expect a point at which there's just a, a huge explosion of violence, uh, sexual or otherwise. It doesn't quite uh, happen. I think to the film's credit. I think it really just likes to stay in that place, much like the assistant do, does of just of being a workplace film of, 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 you know, really tapping into what it's like to, to uh, be a woman in this environment in which you are surrounded by powerful men, uh, men who have power over you. And you, you'd really uh, have to figure out, you know, how, how to protect yourself and who to trust and uh, how to live with this kind of terrible toxic vibe. One of the things you touched on in there, Scott, the idea of trying to figure out which of these men are just playing around and which, which can be trusted and which can't. I think maybe the most real and compelling and carefully negotiated and and thoughtfully negotiated things in this movie for me was the idea that that isn't a cut and dried thing. You know, this, this movie is not about these are the good men and these are the bad men. It's much more about how alcohol and mood and and circumstance and Mm -hmm. behavior and, the confederacy of others, other women and other men, can change a situation to the point where a nice guy turns into a, a potential uh, assaulter, or you know, vice versa. There's just there's a constant negotiation with violence going on in this movie from very early on. That to me was the most compelling aspect of it. Uh, it, it's just, it's not as simple as good guys and bad guys, yeah, nice guys and that's bad important. guys. Yeah. I, I think, I think the best example of this, this is one of the things I really loved in the movies is, is this, this character of Torsten, who is, who is this guy that they meet at the beginning, that they know from the beginning of the film on like a party boat in Sydney. Right. You know, he's just kind of there with them and they're just a bunch of, they're non- they're non-Australians on vacation, having a great time, you know. Uh, and uh, and so when he turns up at the Royal Ho- Hotel later in the film, I think there's a there there is an assumption that he's going to be someone that they can kind of lean on and trust a l- little bit. But of course, you know, once he gets loaded. He becomes kind of, you know, uh, one of those, you know, he, it, the situation changes, like, like their perception of him, uh, their assumptions about him, uh, those kind of turn on a dime. And uh, yeah, it's it, so, yeah, it's to the, to the film's credit, I think that, you know, alcohol plays a huge part in, in uh, altering people's behavior and, and being in this almost conformist environment of, of just being swept along in the atmosphere of this bar and in the in the savagery not savage something short of savagery but that but the uh exuberance of this place can kind of primalism uh, alter right it can kind of alter the chemistry in a way that it becomes dangerous there aren't good guys or bad guys but with the possible exception of the one 
guy who comes to the bar to celebrate his his wedding anniversary with his nice wife. Oh, All man. the men in this are ultimately revealed as shitty. I mean, they're just they're just like they're 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 different varieties of shitty, but they're they're all shitty. And like I kept I kept rooting for teeth. I kept there's a, there's a minor who has a crush on yeah. Liv. If you haven't seen the film, who who who's a, you know you think he might ultimately reveal himself as better than everyone, and and I guess. Relatively speaking, he is better than than, than the other uh, shitty men, but he's still kind of shitty. I mean, it's it's pretty unforgiving in that way. Oh man, the scene with the with the scene with the old older couple celebrating their anniversary—that's really oh. what, that's that's a that's primo stuff. That actor who plays Dolly, the the intimidating one, that's a performance right there. Yeah, too, he's. You know? I mean, he's great, and the, the the casting in this movie is just really on point. I one of the things I loved about the sequence where Dolly is kind of again it's all it's all a negotiation. He, Dolly is negotiating with Hannah about how far he can push her and how much of a rise he can get out of her and I think he he's negotiating with himself how far he wants to go. And that old couple, you know, who just showed up late night celebrate their anniversary and uh, got a little free bubbly out of the deal are just sitting there getting more and more like mortified. There were so many things to be fascinated with that in that scene. But the thing that drew my eye more than anything was the body language of the older man who, you know, is maybe a decent guy that wanted to stand up for Hannah, but also just very clearly knew that he was not physically capable of taking on Dolly and did not want to get beaten down. And throughout that entire scene, his his body language just gets like more and more slumped and indrawn. And he goes from kind of staring at his drink to staring at the bar to staring at the floor. And it was just it was fascinating watching that progression. He doesn't say a lot, but he he does a lot with his body in that sequence. It, it's, a, it's another it's a great turn from uh, Julia Garner as well in that scene, too. Just because uh, I think mm-hmm. there, I think the, that couple is is maybe the f- first couple that the only couple that shows in that bar that she would be kind of happy to serve. Right. I mean, like she's this, you know, I mean, who, how can you not be. uh you know, not want to do something a little special for this. These people who have shown up, and they're going to have this little nice little moment together, and and yet she's having to deal with this mortifying and frightening escalation that uh, provocation that 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 Dolly has decided to uh, deliver at that moment. It's a great scene. I guess I kind of weirdly want to push back against Keith's proclamation that all of the men in this movie, except that nice old guy in the anniversary, are a bunch of shitty men. I feel like one of the things this movie is saying is that it's it's not that they're shitty men, it's that they're shitty power dynamics. Mm-hmm. A lot of these guys, like when they're when they're on their own with each other, you know, they're just goofing around. They're like throwing fireworks. They're like hugging and backslapping each other and sharing beers and having a good time. They just don't know how to relate to women. And the drunker they get, the more dangerous the fact that they want things and don't want to hear no becomes. The more that they operate in groups, you know, a lot of these men are are fine on their own, but once they start getting together in, in groups and enabling each other's behavior, once alcohol becomes involved, you know, nice guys turn into shitty men in this movie. And I, I think that Kitty Green is really making that observation a lot in this film in an interesting way. I Again, I just, I didn't find it a very satisfying experience, but there were a lot of really interesting intellectual threads to pull in this film. 
And one of them that I just kept coming back to is she's not trying to say like men bad, women good, or, you know, women don't have power and need it. She's, it just, it feels far more like she's talking about how like group behavior changes the dynamic and how imbalances in power make it very difficult for like men and women to interact in these unbalanced circumstances without fear of threat on one side and without to some degree feeling a predatory urge on the part of the men. I just, I think the number of men that want to tell Hannah and Liv like off-color jokes and particularly misogynistic jokes to try to get a rise out of them. It's like, it's like wolf whistling, you know, it's like cat calling on the street. It's, it's a display of power. It's a showing off a power dynamic and showing off for other men. But at the same time, it's not, how can I, how can I put this without sounding awful? It's not villainy behavior. I'm just so used to like movies where it would just be very obvious this is the bad man and this is the good man. Yeah. And in this case, I just, I think she's saying these attitudes are bad. These dynamics are bad. These situations are bad. And alcohol doesn't help any of them. But I don't think that even with Dolly, she's just coming out and, and straight up saying like, this is a bad man. Well, look at the, I mean, one thing I, again, I think about this in relation to the assistant in that it kind of starts a little bit at the top. So here you have Billy, played by Hugo Weaving. He's the boss, you know, and and I think the place takes it just like the just like the workplace in the assistant, which we which the boss is an unseen Harvey Weinstein ish mogul. The, the both of these environments take uh, you know, there's like a tone setting that starts from the top. And things things become permissible, and be, people behave in certain ways within that space that they wouldn't necessarily behave uh, otherwise. And it kind of that that's kind of the way it starts when you talk about like a toxic work environment. You know, it usually start starts from the top, and things become either permissible or suggested, or you you go native in a way. You become you know if if you remember like in the assistant. There are plenty of other people who work around Julia Garner's character in that in that movie who are other producers or other below the line types who who are in, in this production office, and they contribute to and reinforce this atmosphere that is set at the top. And I think you kind of get that from Billy here. It's just like if you, if if the boss and the guy and everybody, of course, in that pub knows he's the boss. If this is the way he he he's gonna drink and the way he's gonna treat women and the tone that he sets for that place where anything goes then it's just going to be reinforced by everybody else in that in that space yeah i i feel like billy is one of the big conundrums the big interesting conundrums uh in in this movie and maybe the thing that is sort of most undefined to me in terms of why is he not paying his grocer? You know, is the bar failing? Are they, is he running out of money? Or is it just like, we see that he's descending further and further into alcoholism? Like, can he just not be bothered? What's going wrong in this scenario? Like, why is he willing to abdicate the care of his bar and his home to foreign girls that he's met like less than a week ago? (laughs) They're just a lot of big questions. And a lot of them, for me, revolve around 
who Billy is and what exactly is going wrong in his life. There's a lot of questions around Carol, his his cook and maybe live in cook. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. exactly. That's a relationship. Yeah. A relationship. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, okay. That, I mean, by the end, maybe it's just because she's fed up and ready to get out. They live in trailer together. Yeah, it's just uh, the, the, there's there's a lot of big unanswered questions, I guess, in the background of this movie, and maybe they aren't meant to matter because we're spending our time with uh, Liv and Hannah. And we we didn't really talk at all about the dynamic between them, which is also, I think, one of the movie's more, more complicated things in terms of like one of the big things that this movie had in common with The Assistant for me is that in both cases, Julia Garner is placed in this very unenviable space of being a woman who's trying to protect other women who maybe don't want her protection, maybe need her protection, and maybe see her as uh, an interfering pill for trying to protect them. That's just, it stands out for me in both movies, like just how wearily and doggedly she's trying to keep other women from harm and how both difficult it makes her life that she feels that sense of responsibility and how just what a thankless job it is. Yeah, and I mean, on Liv's part, it's almost sort of like surrender in a way. It's just like, I, what are you going to, you know, It's it becomes easier just to say, okay, I, I'm going to, you know, maybe just try to go with the flow here because having to kind of resist this environment is hellishly difficult. And it, it causes a certain amount of division between the two of I mean, the two of them kind of they're pals they're 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 going on this adventure t- together and and uh you know in a way they they do need each other uh, i mean we had talked about pairing options for this movie and one, one obvious one that we didn't do because we'd already done it was thelma and louise and you can kind of th- see you know hannah is the susan sarandon type and live as the gina davis type of just of, of one, one a little bit more level-headed and the other the other uh, more impulsive and, and given to making uh, um, the you know party and giving making some mistakes. Um, so there's that that, that dynamics kind of baked into those into those characters. Well, in interviews, Kitty Green has cited three films as touchstones for this, and Thelma and Louise is one of them, which we already did. Straw Dogs was another, which we mentioned in the last episode, and the third was Wake and Fright. I think we should probably discuss that film next when we return after a short break to talk about connections. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. One of these you noted before was was the struggle for identity. Can you kind of ex- expand on those thoughts a little bit, Tasha? Yeah, I I mean, I, I can certainly see why you immediately thought of Awake and Fright for this movie. When uh, I, I, I watched Royal Hotel first, and I actually kind of started laughing uh, really early at Awake and Fright when the action transitions into a rundown r- rural Australian bar uh, during the day when it seems deserted and everything seems like worn and disintegrating. It just... It- 
<laughs> it felt like I was just watching a continuation of the movie. <laughs> I almost expected Hannah and Liv to show up, uh, or maybe just the the two English girls, since uh, you know we clearly hadn't reached the end of Royal Hotel yet. But watching these two movies in full, one of the things, and I touched on this a bit when we talked about Wake and Fright, one of the things that stands out to me most is just how much the central characters are trying to figure out who they are. You know, it it feels like Liv is trying to negotiate this balance between like she kind of wants to let go of everything. She wants to have fun and have a good time. But she's willing to like give up wholesale chunks of her personality in order to do so and sacrifice her personal safety. And that's just something I see so much of in in John Grant in Wake and Fright. Both of them, I think, get way over their head with binge drinking. Both of them allow themselves to get drawn in with dangerous groups who don't have anything like well-intentioned for them, who, you know, are both physically dangerous to them and like morally and emotionally dangerous to them. But they're kind of trying to figure out who they are and who they want to be. I feel like in the same way John Grant comes to the ABBA thinking he's kind of above it all and, and setting himself aside from it. Liv and Hannah come to this small town, you know, as as American outsiders who kind of think that they're better than this environment. And they laugh at how the English girls live and how they behave in the bar. They laugh at uh, people's drunken behavior, but then they get drawn into it. They they get drawn into the environment. This sort of the the moment where both of them go from being like disdainful outsiders who want nothing to do with these Yahoo locals to wait, you know, a place to swim. And then smash cut to them all journeying off together to this uh, rather delightful looking swimming hole. This is just a movie about uh, people getting drawn into situations that looking for acceptance, looking for comfort to some degree, looking to make the most of a bad situation, looking for approval and looking for safety, I, I think, in, in both of these cases. So that's that's the biggest thorough line for me. Yeah, I think the unsettling thing about both films, but especially more so in Wake and Fright, which you know everything about it is slightly more unsettling than than the Royal Hotel, is is the the, the depiction of identity as being situational that you can become a if not a totally different person in a different situation, someone almost unrecognizable as the person you were before. Anyway, it, it's it's not something we walk around thinking about, or it's a comforting thought to have, but but it's it's convincing. The, the depiction of that process is, is convincing in both these films. They're sort of tests of character in a way. I mean, of just like, who, who are you when you come into these, this place? And, and, it, and, and you, you get a sense in the Royal Hotel that, that this job that is, that they're casting particular, a particular type for this job, that they need young women who have, you know, a certain amount of, uh, you know, maybe party girls or maybe just have that level of uncertainty that can be to where they can be exploited in a way that other people might not be able to. I mean, I think Hannah becomes this exception to, uh, you know, it sort, of, it sort of backfires in a way that sort of, uh, of uh, in the sense that she, she has a much stronger sense of self than Billy anticipates that anybody anticipates. And that ultimately results in, you know, the, the bar being burned to the ground, but like, but in, in, in Wake and Fright, of course, you know, uh, John learned something about himself and the movie is kind of about taking somebody who is, who doesn't know what he's capable of 
and um, puts him through, through the ringer until he finds out something about himself. Maybe some, some things about himself that are, you know, kind of shameful. I kind of feel a lot of that going on with some of the male characters in uh, Royal Hotel as well. Maddie in particular. I thought Maddie was a really interesting character who you can just feel like he would he would definitely not think that he was the bad guy in any circumstance that he was in. And you see him being like just a perfectly amiable, uh, friendly person to get along with. And you see him being a snide jerk who makes crude sexual jokes to, to make people uncomfortable and like make the entire bar laugh. And you see him participating with Dolly in something that's almost certainly going to be a, a kidnapping and sexual assault. If it goes that far, like he's just, I don't think he knows who he is either. And I think that who he is, is, as you say, very situational, very dependent on who he's trying to please, uh, which is often himself. And sometimes older men and sometimes uh, the the women, just kind of depending on how inebriated he is and how he's feeling. He just strikes me as... I kept coming back to uh, Phaedra Starling's idea of uh, Schrodinger's rapist. You know, the, the idea that for women in a circumstance with men they don't know, there's, you know, a, a chance that anybody who is approaching them could be approaching them with ill intent, could be approaching them with dangerous intent. And one of the things that I see throughout uh, Royal Hotel is Maddie shifting back and forth over that line in much the same way John does, not as a potential sexual assaulter, but in terms of whether he's going along with the group or resisting the group, whether he's holding so himself apart from the group or trying to impress them. I think there's just a, a sense of like young men in particular in both of these movies kind of trying to like go along with the flow and maybe let older men help define them in some ways. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, it's something you, you talked about Tasha when we were, um, in the last, yeah, you know, when we were talking about the Royal Hotel, as kind of are these kind of group dynamics and just the the way, um, you know, what's kind of scary about the environments in both Wake and Fright and in the Royal Hotel is is how individuals who are passive or or weak and don't really have that sense of self, which you know, how many individuals that actually describes, you know, how 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 you can get, you know, a room full of people to to behave in a way that's almost indistinguishably savage and frightening you know this is this is sort of mob that kind of gets 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 whipped up in a way that if you were to isolate any one of them in a different context may not be possible at all i mean it, w it would be far hard to sort of tap into that and uh, that, i mean it's 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 scary and it almost is a result specifically of these environments in which um, it's just almost all men, <laughs> you know, and, and and men have this way when eh, when we get together, you know. Uh, I guess I should should say we uh, here. Um, uh, Last time you and I hung out, how many how many kangaroos did we kill? It was <laughs> many, several, you know? right? <laughs> but you know, we've we've downed some. You know, we've we've. Yeah, I don't know. We we don't. We actually are not that. Uh, we're pretty mild, <laughs> but like, but theoretically. <laughs> We're theoretically we can we can egg each other on and and uh, you know and there's kind of guy talk and it's a little bit you know a little more brusque and and uh, you know and edgy and I, I've been, I've certainly been in environments like that um, that have, have been 
where you feel pretty uncomfortable in those spots if if uh, if you're if you're not on board with it with the way that goes. But that's the way it goes. You get a you get a room full of men together, particularly if it's uh, seasoned uh, with, with alcohol and and um, and you get in a certain kind of loudishness prevails, and it's it's kind of hard to resist that not even hard to resist it's almost there's almost a there are almost consequences for 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 resisting it it's like you you draw hostility it's like oh you're not drinking (laughs) with us you're not part of this uh yeah i was with you i kind of related to alan and barbie in some situations like that it's like (laughs) it's surrounded surrounded by a bunch of kins doing kin things like i just feather be over here and be alan you know but that's not they're not encouraged to do that by uh most situations are you no I think, I mean, I I kept coming back to uh, the the men in black line. Uh, A person is smart and people are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals and you know it. I think there's a lot of that in in both of these uh, situations. Like when John Grant is alone with with Doc or with Tim, yeah, with Jock uh, at the beginning, like all of these conversations are pretty convivial um you know pretty calm pretty pretty removed and pretty intellectual it's just the addition of more and more people and more and more booze and more and more chaos that enables this kind of like mob think behavior that for me kind of culminates in the the kangaroo scene the sort of like anything goes we have to keep egging each other on like everybody wants to you know, do more and be better and like get validation and recognition and acclaim. So this is just like one upsmanship that happens. And that that is not unique to men being alone. And it's definitely not unique to uh, men who've been drinking. I've certainly seen that behavior among uh, women in a group and women who've been drinking. It's just women who've been drinking and are acting uh, like chaotic and, and cruel have much less uh, opportunity to assault men under uh, mixed gender circumstances. But I think one thing that affects both of these movies pretty heavily in terms of changing that whole group dynamics mob behavior thing is the classist kind of thing that's going on in both. Mm. In Royal Hotel, we get a little like rundown at the very beginning that feels like the rundown of different tables in the high school at the beginning of Mean Girls. Just sort of here's a taxonomy of the people you're going to meet locally. And it it does kind of come down to like how much education they have and whether they're, you know, more mind jockeys or like management types. We find out that Maddie is college educated, that he studied meteorology. Like that's one of the things that makes him differentiated from all the miners we see in you know Civil. mining gear uh, I, I don't know the best sense of what maddie did though did, was i did i miss something no but i assumed that it had something to do with uh not necessarily meteorology but i i wondered if that played into it you know i wondered sure. if there's some you know more educated uh position that he he could have in the mine he certainly carries himself uh differently from some of the other men who have clearly been like blue collar workers there their entire lives. And in Wake and Fright, we have the same kind of thing. You know, one of the reasons I keep coming back to John Grant holding himself apart from everybody else is he very clearly considers himself educated, uh, like an intellectual, the kind of man who carries a suitcase full of books with him on vacation, somebody who belongs in England and doesn't belong in Australia. 
And he makes that connection with Doc over kind of their shared intellectualism. But everybody else that they're hanging out with, like Tim's whole group, come across as a bunch of like blue collar workers. There's just there's a class divide there that's very clear in terms of education and background. And I think we see it in both of these movies kind of in deciding like who can go along with the flow, uh, who can fit in with the mob, especially when they're drunk and who kind of separates themselves out and and can't give over to that kind of like, you know, emotional catharsis. Well, one thing that stokes that is is the, the common to both these films is is alcohol. And it is not it's not an alluring depiction of drinking in, in <laughs> either of, of these films. I mean, it's not like a puritanical. I, I don't see it either as puritanical. I see both as being fairly clear-eyed about what happened when, when as as we've been discussing, a group of a group of people, especially men in these cases, get together and 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 drink way too much, and then urge each other to drink some more. Drink responsibly is what you should do. Uh, not uh, not what they're doing here. No, neither film. Uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about I mean, the, the about Wicked Fright. About uh, you know, as soon as Jock uh, takes Gran under his wing and you know into the into the bar, he he's not he's ordering him a second beer before he can either, even suck down the first, and and uh, he he needs to make sure that he drinks that thing as quickly as possible. And moving on to the next one. And then you get, and then you get a bit later where, uh, where, <laughs> where, where Grant's with Doc and and uh, just requests water. <laughs> it's just like no, you, nobody drinks water here. <laughs> yeah, uh, just so gives him some alcohol instead. It's just a um, very casual uh, line. Y- Yabba water's only good for washing. Have a beer. <laughs> that's right. That's a great. Yeah, that's a which great also line. Something, also be a comment on on you're probably safer drinking the beer than drinking the mm-hmm. water too. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Um, or it's just it's just you know this you know dust hole is probably better uh, experienced in a, in a state of uh, high inebriation because it's uh, otherwise kind of a bleak place to be um there's that too uh, but, but yeah, there's uh, certainly a sense in both of these films that because of the isolation and like lack of of any kind of culture you know these these places don't have libraries or movie theaters or like non-alcohol-based socializing spaces. There's not a whole lot to do except drink. And Mm -hmm. people drink pretty hard to kind of get out of the circumstances they're in in both cases. Yeah. And it's all it's only kind of managed by like Billy, you know, if things get a little out of hand, then some somebody gets a little suspension from the bar for a little while, then they go they're gonna be allowed back after a certain amount of time. Which don't aren't enforced as, 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 as we found out. Yeah. Uh, watching the film. I mean, one of the things I kept thinking during Royal hotel was like, how the hell would you enforce that? Uh, there's, there's a point where Hannah is trying to persuade Billy to ban Dolly and gets no traction. But later she kind of forcibly says, you know, Dolly couldn't have been in the bar. Dolly's banned. <laughs> I just thought, Oh my gosh, you, you sweet summer child. Like, how on earth do you think you're going to enforce that? That phone call was that was quite a moment too. I wasn't really sure what to, what to make of that. I would love to know what y'all made of that phone call because I just don't think I understood it. Which phone call again? Remind toward me. Toward the toward the end when 
Is it one? It's one of the English ones from before, right? The calls or or is it? I the there was a name spoken, but I didn't catch it. I yeah, it was had kind of thought that it was um that it was Carol. This is something Bob and I talked about a lot afterwards. I mean, it's mm. there's so little information there in terms of it, just very garbled uh, audio, and you don't really know what you're hearing or what it means. What, I, it, I, I was hoping one of you were like, "Oh, what you missed? You missed that." I think I missed it. Yeah, this isn't this is yeah. This it's, isn't it's the almost one like a horror movie moment. This is the one it where really saying, is. like like take that. But Carol Carol tells them in person to kind of take the money and and run basically. Yeah, there's a phone call that Hannah picks up towards the very end of the movie. That's a woman's voice. It's garbled. She keeps laughing. It's a bad connection. She's trying to communicate something, and then they get cut off. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like a horror movie moment. It's 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 creepy. But but we're straying from the straying from our favorite topic, which is which is booze. Uh, actually, one of my favorite <laughs> details in in Wake and Fright is Doc's commitment to sticking with beer like that he has a line <laughs> and like he he's he's he knows he's an alcoholic and he does nothing to really try to stop that at least in within the framework of the of the film but he's just going to drink beer but he's going to drink so much beer it doesn't he refuses he does refuse whiskey matter. at one point doesn't he yeah that is that is that is the line and nobody else has that that has that has that line they won't cross in either other film but uh in in either of these films but it, it is just sort of they do mostly stick to beer though isn't it it is it is kind of maybe it's a, a cultural well, element beer before that, that, beer before liquor keith n- never sicker that's right that's right there's the whole business about this. maddie and his cider, although I'm not 100% sure whether, you know, every time Hannah hands him a hands him a drink and says it's cider, she's just being ironic because of his introductory joke or like that bar actually has cider. But it does seem like if, you know, if he's the one person there that's drinking cider, it would make him stand out. It's possible it's just an in-joke that she has, or it's possible that it's something she wants to continually remind him of, how he introduced himself to them. I, I'm sorry to report that there actually is a uh, um, Dickens cider, uh, Dickens brand cider, I should, oh, I should boy. say. Yeah, alas. <laughs> yeah, I guess it was kind of inevitable though, right? Yeah, not well thought through. Mm-hmm. No, it's intentional. The they all their all their their taglines and stuff are, are double really? entendres. Oh, yeah, man. yeah, yeah. That's that's yeah. not that's not that's not fostering a good envi- environment. I spent so much time during that sequence just thinking if she wasn't so naive, if she wasn't just so completely missing the point, it would be so easy to turn that around on him. You know, he's here's this guy at the bar just repeatedly oh, right, demanding sure. a dick in. Oh, you want some, huh? <laughs> you, I'm yeah. sorry, you, you keep asking for a dick in, a dick in where? Uh, it, it would have been just very easy for a more savvy person to pick up on that. And it, it doesn't happen. And it's just a very telling moment. So two, not to stray too far off topic, but, 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 um, um, it's another point of comparison, though, too. Uh, Green and her co-writer for this film, Oscar Redding, are both Australian. So yes. this is definitely an inside an inside job. Uh, to, so there is a I think in there's in addition to like being a not particularly particularly flattering depiction of certain parts of Australian culture. It's also the Americans are, are certainly 
prod it and made fun of here as well. The two things I liked was <laughs> the 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 when Hannah orders the Fosters at the bar and and she can't hear the bartender say like really there there are other there are other better beers too. But also the film opens with um sort of a foreboding electronic version of of the Minute Work song Down Under. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's both both very knowing touches. That I was think. awesome. I mean, like to to go, when you emerge from that club setting and you realize you're on this boat basically it's i thought it was a really cool you know way, way to open the, open Fake the movie out. Yeah. yeah yeah sailing around the sydney Austra- opera house i'm very curious about the documentary too that that, that inspired the royal hotel hotel uh, cougardy is a directed by pete gleason yeah i i was it was not on my it's not on my radar at all I, no no I, not I, at all. Not even she, sure. that's, her, that's her i mean that's kitty green's background too before she did the assistant in the royal hotel she did she did um a couple of doc- really interesting, you know, documentaries. You know, she did uh, the Jean Benet documentary, uh, casting Jean mm. Benet. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it's, I haven't. I haven't seen that. It's I've incredible. Things, it's so. like it's very un, very un, un, unconventional documentary. Uh, then uh, she. Did, I should, I'll, I'll just say, Hotel Cougarty is streaming on Prime, so maybe how I'll watch that? that soon. Yeah. And then she, nice. then she also did, her her first film, which I have not seen, is called uh, Ukraine is not a brothel. Uh, that's mm. also a documentary, but I don't know. She's really interesting to me. I, I think she's super, super talented. And, uh, you know, I like this movie, this new one. So, you know, go Kitty Green. Well, I chances are when Kitty Green makes another film, we'll find something to pair it with. Uh, we, yeah, keep we, it going. Wake and Fright, in the meantime, is currently streaming on Shudder, Plex, uh, with commercials, right, Tasha? And oh my AMG gosh, Plus. so many commercials for Peloton. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, Wake and Fright, I I'd planned to watch it on Shudder. I had problems with the, the Shudder account. Just Watch said it was on Canopy. It was not. Plex was my third choice. And I got to tell you, Wake and Fright's like, tension is not improved by being interrupted for commercials for Christian College. Yeah. All right. Well, it's also if you don't want commercials at all, you can rent it through various services, and it's on DVD and Blu-ray. Yeah, it, it, listeners can borrow uh, Keith and I's Blu-ray if they want to. <laughs> they promise to give it back. The Roy Hotel is currently uh, in theaters. We'll be back in a moment with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that we'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, I understand you have one. Yes, I do. Uh, and it kind of connects up well with uh, these episodes that have dealing with questions of of civilization. And uh, uh, it's uh, it's about, called The Mission. It's a, it's a new documentary from Jesse Moss and Amanda McBain. Uh, who were the uh, team who did uh, Boy State? This is their new uh, documentary. It is uh, oh nice, mm, yeah, right. So it's a it's a and it's it would uh, pair up well with uh, Grizzly Man or Into the Wild. It's in that that, that sort of uh, vein. This is a this is about uh, John Chow, who was this uh, American missionary who in 2018 uh, attempted to reach out and to uh, convert the indigenous peoples of North Sentinel Island, which is uh, this remote island in uh, the Bay of Bengal. Um, the, the, there's about 200, uh, population of about 200. Uh, one of the few pretty pretty much untouched hunter-gatherer uh, civilizations on Earth. And um, 
it was ill-advised and he was killed with a with a bow and arrow but it is a film that is that is about his journey getting there he's an evangelical christian it's it's about the journey he takes getting there step by step by step and and, and his background it draws from his journals and and, and it draws from this letter that his father wrote posthumously reflecting on what had happened but then what's really interesting about the movie is that it is it it has a much larger interest in in the history of missionary work and in, in sort of the ethical problems with it and uh it, it it's got these two talking heads in it who are just who you could make a documentary about either one of them that i would watch in a second one of them one of them is a guy who who spent over two decades as a missionary in Brazil trying to trying to convert uh, an indigenous people a indigenous tribe in the Amazon basin and ultimately gave up his faith uh, and he was fascinating and then there was another the, the other person they talked to is a uh, is uh, somebody who wrote a book about his experiences and other people's experiences trying to reach the Sentinelese and um, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's called the mission. There's a lot to think about here. Uh, a lot to think about the nature of civilization and what we consider civilization about the kind of, you know, the arrogance and hubris of, of, of missionary work and, and how missionary work happens and what, what, it, what it's current and present state is a lot. There's just a lot more here than the story of this one, you know, 26 year old who, who, uh, who died trying to do it, but there's plenty, plenty to unpack there as well. So I highly recommend it. Yes. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. I remember that story. I would like it was to, memed. Uh, it was like, memed quite, quite harshly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, yeah. which is kind of one of the things that's great about the movie is that it is like, it is a, it is a film that has a point of view, but it is, it is a, it is a thoughtful film. It is not a film that is, that is really, uh, you know, um, on the attack. It's just, it's, it's a much more, it has a lot of, it just has perspective and depth to it, and I kind of appreciate that about it. Well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with another set of episodes. Tasha, do you want to tell us about what we'll be watching next? For decades, mainstream studios had a pretty fixed idea of what Native Americans were supposed to look like on screen. They were the inscrutable savage villains in Westerns and West set dramas, and they were played by white people in makeup and wigs. Martin Scorsese's stunning new true crime drama, Killers of the Flower Moon, shows how far we've come from that way of thinking. But while its sympathetic, horrified look at a group of white men in 1920s Oklahoma systematically dismantling an Osage tribe to steal its oil wealth is more progressively made and more sympathetically drawn than those old westerns, it still purposefully takes us back to an era of deeply ingrained racial prejudice. You can say the same thing for 1950s Broken Arrow, a Jimmy Stewart Western that broke new ground for its time in terms of portraying white settlers as exploitative and predatory, and native tribes as the honorable victims of deception and greed. Like Killers of the Flower Moon, Broken Arrow is based on real events and real historical figures. But while it was a huge step forward for its era, the movie does keep those white folks in red face for most of the native roles, with several other elements that feel odd or alarming today. We'll compare how these two movies handle their stories about political conflict, community building, marriage, and predation between natives and white settlers next time on The Next Picture Show. For now, we welcome your feedback on Wake and Fright and The Royal Hotel or anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? 
Well, you can find me mostly at the reveal, uh, uh, which uh, with the of course the newsletter I do with you, Keith. Uh, we just uh, passed. Uh, we just celebrated our our uh, second anniversary. We keep keep rolling along. Um, that's uh, the reveal um, You can also find my work in the New York Times, Guardian, Vulture, and other fine publications. You can find me on uh, Blue Sky at Scott. Tobias, uh, all not not no underscore anymore. Just all just all run together like that. Keith, you can find my work at the reveal at thereveal.substack.com. And yeah, two years going. Uh, you can find me on Blue Sky at kfips three thousand whatever. You need to type on the end of, of that. I'm officially on Twitter, X whatever, but not not really. Uh, you can find my work at places like Vulture and TV Guide, The Ringer and Slate and GQ. Uh, Tasha, how about you? You can find me lingering and fading on X at Tosh Robinson. You can find me uh, thriving and trying to start conversations over on Blue Sky, also at Tosh Robinson. You can find me at Polygon, uh, where I am the film and streaming editor and uh, writing, still writing, writing, writing about uh, things that I saw at Fantastic Fest and interviewing uh, people who had new movies there and new movies coming up. Uh, You can also right now find me on the Dice Exploder podcast if you want to hear me uh, talk a lot about my other big hobby uh, apart from film, which is role playing. I did a a long and, and really interesting conversation conversation with Sam Dunwald, the host about uh, map making in RPGs, what they're used for, uh, all of the different kind of stories they enable. That was a really fun conversation and uh, really far reaching. So a Dice Exploder podcast. I really was hoping you'd say my other big hobby, hunting kangaroos. Um, you can find our, our absent co- uh, co-host, Jenna Yukoski, is not really on social media, but where she is, you can find her at Jenna Yukoski. She is a TV editor at Vulture. Uh, you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net, on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and on Blue Sky at, at nextpictureshow. Get bonus content or open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Baked Jakes for his assistance producing the podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Mm-hmm.